Hi everyone, you are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine, and each week I talk to the most interesting culinary folks around. Joining me today is Justine Doran, the recipe developer and TikTok sensation known as Justine Snacks. Not only has Justine captivated an entire generation with her viral recipe videos, but she also is responsible for last year's butterboard craze. In the process, she discovered that a lot of people have deeply held opinions about butterboards. Not sure what a butterboard is? Stay tuned. We also discuss the unique challenges of being a content creator, how Justine became a TikTok star, and what she's doing for her upcoming cookbook. Justine and I also have a candid conversation about her eating disorder. I wanted to flag that in case it's something you or a loved one are dealing with. I'll chat with Justine in just a minute. A little housekeeping? Our Jubilee Conference is taking place Saturday, April 15th at Center 415 in Manhattan. Jubilee is the largest gathering of women in and around the world of food and drink, and this will be our 10th in-person Jubilee. It's also Cherry Bomb's 10th birthday. Can you believe? Jubilee Day is filled with great talks, networking, beautiful things to eat and drink, and lots of opportunities for connection, conversation, and community. Jubilee tickets are on sale now, so visit cherrybomb.com for more, or click on the link in our show notes. I would love to see you at Jubilee. This episode of Radio Cherry Bomb is supported by Quesarai Champignon, a 115-year-old cheese producer and the maker of Cambazola. This fine cheese is made with Bavarian Alpine milk and crafted by master cheesemakers dedicated to using all natural ingredients and traditional methods to create one-of-a-kind cheeses. Cambazola, a triple cream soft ripened cheese with delicate notes of blue, is truly a cheese like no other. For a more intense experience, try Cambazola Black Label, aged longer and colder than Cambazola Classic. This bold and exceptionally creamy cheese was a 2020 best-in-class winner at the renowned World Championship Cheese Contest. From cheese boards to remarkable recipes, Cambazola is always an opportunity to taste the extraordinary. Try it on top of a portobello, in a sexy salad, or on a sliced steak crostini for a truly indulgent experience. Visit thisisfinecheese.com to find recipes, pairings, and where to buy Cambazola at a store near you. It's not blue. It's not Brie, it's Cambazola. Now, let's check in with today's guest. Justine Doran, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm an old, old Cherry Bomb listener. You're doing so many interesting things, and you really are in the thick of it right now in terms of what people are talking about and thinking about. So let's jump in. When did you join TikTok? I joined TikTok in 2020. I feel like there was a huge wave that happened during the pandemic. And I joined because I was a publicist at the time and I knew my boss was going to be like, what is this app? You need to teach me how to use it. And my worst fear was being like, I cannot understand it. So as soon as you download TikTok, it's a monster of overwhelming content. And so I realized the only way that I was going to be able to understand the app is if I started creating content on it. So it was strictly a work creation. When and why did you start making food videos? It was the first style of video I made, and that's because I didn't want to get fired. And so I needed content that I didn't have to put my face in, something I knew how to do, and something that, I laugh at this looking back, I thought was easy to produce. And now that I'm doing it professionally, I'm like, 
I can't believe I chose that medium. But I also was doing food videos in a way that is so looking back kitschy and like jokey because I thought it was an app for kids. I thought 12 year olds were watching this. So I was like, what what would like teenagers want to see? A sushi turned into a cake and pasta turned into flowers. It was all this crazy stuff. Oh, how interesting. So you're trying to keep this on the down low, but your employer at the time did not look favorably on your social media hobby. Tell us about the memo that was sent to employees about social media activity. Oh, wow. I, I can only speak favorably of my team. Unfortunately, my team has since most of them have been laid off because the company had to do major downsizing. But my team was super supportive. The company actually sent a company-wide email asking about moonlighting. And then they shared all the examples. That could be a second job. That could be a YouTube channel. Just this huge company-wide email. So I didn't feel particularly targeted, but I knew I had to disclose what I was doing. And then it was calls and calls and calls with standards, the ethics team, lawyers, because the company had to set a precedent of what to do when your employee becomes a online content creator. And I was the first, but I've recently spoken with people still at the company. I'm far from the last. And they were trying to set very strict standards. But that's a lot. I mean, you you still are young. You were even younger then. Was your head spinning? You're like, oh, my God, lawyers, I just want to keep my job. I wanted to keep my job so badly. I even told my SVB at the time, I was like, I really want you to advocate for me. Like, I can do both. We can make this work. And also, it got all the way up to the ladder to our content VP, and she was all for it. It was just the legal team really saw a lot of conflict of interest, a lot of potential problems, which I don't blame them. I took it very personally at the time. I still am very sad that I had to leave that job. It was very much an ultimatum kind of situation, choose your job or choose your accounts. But I really do think leaving gave me so much creativity and so much freedom. Scariest thing I ever did, but it really worked out for me. Well, I heard they inadvertently helped you because you realized you were doing some sponsored projects at the time, but you were way undercharging. The amounts that I was charging is now looking back hysterical. And I thought I was making so much money. I was making like $200 for an ad post. When my company was telling me it's either us or your accounts, I was like, I can't do brand deals right now, so I'll just give them crazy numbers. And they met those numbers without blinking an eye. And then I realized that you can definitely sustain a life in content creation with one or two brand deals a month. And it's not this humongous endeavor that I thought it was going to be. And that is what helped me jump the nest. You weren't really thinking of this as a career at that point, though. No, because... Or or were you? No, I wasn't because the narrative at least fed to me. I'm kind of an older or middle millennial. The narrative fed to us is that content can go away in a second. This is the most unstable job you can ever have. And I love stability. I love plans. I love the idea of having a long career. I definitely wanted to be a woman in a pantsuit till the day I died. And so I did not think of this as the path for me. And even then, the idea of monetizing only with brand deals didn't feel very stable. And I've expanded my brand since then, so I don't have to rely on that. So I had no idea that it could be a career. And it was really getting pushed to the brink to make me turn it into a career. Did you do much social media in college? No. I didn't have an Instagram until 2016. 
How about Facebook or any of the others? I had Facebook, but I was actually one of the first abandoners of Facebook. Also in 2016, I just dropped it for Instagram because that's when they were having a lot of their public information gathering scandals. And I looked at it and I was like, I don't really need this. I only use it for group projects. And when I look at everything put together, there were zero clues pointing me to this path, except for the fact that I've always loved food. You went to the hospitality school at Cornell University. Why did you want to go there? Was a career in hospitality of interest? Very much so. And that's a great school. I think it's really funny also my path to there. I was a guest services consultant as my high school job at the St. Louis Zoo, best zoo in America. And I just loved people and I loved hospitality and I loved working with customers. And so my 18-year-old brain was like, I'm just going to do this full time. And then I go to the most intense program in the United States where all of these kids have been working in kitchens since they were 13 or like living and breathing for the hotel industry. And I felt so intimidated and so lost because I was just a person there because I liked people and I liked service and I liked food and beverage, but I didn't know that it was the juggernaut it is today. Like we didn't have the show The Bear then to dramatize all the ugly parts. I went to Cornell, and it's an amazing program, and I had an amazing time, but I don't think I took advantage of it the way I could have because I was surrounded by the best of the best, and I shrunk into myself, and I definitely regret that. I did get a great base of culinary knowledge, but I always regret that I didn't dive into it the way I could have, and it was just because my surroundings were so intimidating, but I'm so glad I have that network now. Did you stay in touch with folks there? I mean, you're, you're one of their superstar grads now. I've stayed in touch. I've also met people through being in the industry now who just started in the industry right after school and stayed there. And it's such a blessing to be able to reconnect and have that in common because it's a very small school. I think about 200 students per class within Cornell, which is a humongous school. Right, right. But when you connect with people, like everybody knows everybody. So that's something that's been really nice to have. How did public relations wind up becoming your thing? Oh, that's interesting. I got a great internship the summer after my sophomore year. And that was in LA and that was for the entertainment industry. And at that time, I just wanted to work. I've always been a workhorse. I've never not worked. And since 15, I've never not had a job of some sort. Was that your 42 West internship? Yeah. So I was working in a cubicle, like two feet away from Halle Berry's publicist. And I was like, I'm in too deep. And I was also a hospitality student at the time. And so I was also working with Beck Media Marketing. So I was doing part-time at two jobs. And Beck is actually where I learned a lot and got a lot of networking down. So that is where I started public relations, but I knew I had to put a hospitality spin on it. So after graduating college, I worked in PR for a lot of food and beverage brands and then transferred that PR experience to ABC News. That is a very A-list, high-paced place, similar to a 42 West. What was your experience like there? Very high-paced. I got that job through a friend who was working there. He's still a very close friend. And it was quite the twist from doing my hospitality PR to I was working on one of their political shows. It was right after the 2016 election. And it was with one of their most successful, now vice presidents, but one of their most successful executive producers running the ship. And I was the only publicist assigned to that show, I had my manager above me, who she's now at Peacock. Everybody just goes everywhere. And that pace 
I thrived because it was on the weekends. So it was a three-day-a-week job. You worked really hard for three days. And then for the four days that we were prepping for the show, there wasn't really much to do. So it was a very interesting job. I left after a year and a half because I knew there was more for me outside of a three-day-a-week job. But it, it gave me a look into a side of news and media and the ethics behind media that I still carry with me today. And whenever people critique media, all I can think about is the team I worked there, how much respect I have for them, how hard they worked, how ethical they were behind their coverage. And it, I was just, I was very proud to work there for the time I did. And what a time to be there right after the 2016 election. I can't even imagine working in news at that time. It was, it was exhausting, but it was definitely worth it. So then you move to your next company, the memo (laughs) happens, and we know what happened after that. Where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, but then for about five to six years in the middle of my childhood, we were expats in Hong Kong. So it kind of gave me what I call the best of both worlds if I have very grounded Midwestern roots. If anyone is listening from the Midwest, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It can't be replicated anywhere else. But it also gave me an appreciation for cultures outside of my own and a lack of fear of cultures outside of my own because I think that is another problem with growing up with the Midwest in the Midwest is at least in my family we were very steak and potatoes there was a lot of fear of the unknown and I feel like having that experience and having my dad push us out to live somewhere else really just made me kind of question being wary of anything else how young were you when you went to Hong Kong I think I was age there age six to twelve okay five to twelve what memories do you have of Hong Kong Lots of memories of the markets. So Stanley Market was the one place we'd go. And I just remember my mom was terrified. But as kids, we had a blast because like everything was at our eye level and it was just crowded and you could smell everything. It was like right next to a fish market. So I remember that. I also remember going to the beaches, which are not like American beaches. And I do remember going to HKS, which was an international school. So my friends were like French. They were Canadian. They were Chinese. It was just a humongous group of kids all sent to one place. It was a very vibrant city, and I want to go back as an adult. I haven't had the opportunity to yet. I love Hong Kong. Six to 12, though, those are very formative years. Very much, although they did not teach us Cantonese. They taught us Mandarin, which I find so interesting for as a choice for Hong Kong, but a very good learning opportunity, so young. But when you come back and you're a teenager, I feel like those are the years you really appreciate things. So it felt like I, if I could have chosen, I would have flipped it. Okay, so then you come back at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. That's, that's another tough age to start a new school, do things like that. How was your re-entry? Re-entry was, I wouldn't say difficult. It was just the life we lived. Like you go, you have this massive experience, but when you're that young, it doesn't feel like a massive experience. And then when you're older, you can begin to process it a bit more. Were you more open-minded about food because of the time you spent in Hong Kong? I was definitely more curious about food. So I talk about this a lot. I grew up in a family that didn't really prioritize food. And when I started the job that I have now, I felt like I was 10 steps behind people. So people would have stories about learning how to cook at their grandma's kitchen, like under the table, and would talk about these big family dinners they had. And I felt like We grew up in Hong Kong, right, but we were definitely still eating Americanized food there, and we were definitely expats, and we would go out to eat, but it was just different than what it would have been if I was older. I was still relatively sheltered, and then moving back, 
I didn't really have a family that was like really teaching me how to cook or deeply rooted in a food culture. So I always see myself as a self-made cook or a self-taught cook, and I call myself homemade. So that's the phrase I use because it definitely didn't feel like food was a huge priority for us. So when we came back from Hong Kong, my dad was the big chef of the family, but he was always working, so he never did it often. But every three months, he'd have this like raucous parties where wine would be flowing and he'd be making appetizers at our little like open floor kitchen plan. And that's where I really realized like food had magic was where it was truly bringing people together. And it rarely happened, but he would cook things that he had learned in Hong Kong. And he'd also bring in like inspiration that he got from other places. And that's when I realized there's something there for me. It wasn't all the time, but when it did happen, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. I know we did a trigger warning in the beginning, but I just want to add a second trigger warning in case people skipped through my intro. We are going to be talking about eating disorders. Justine has been very candid on TikTok about this, and she has graciously agreed to talk about this today. And I hope there are some folks out there who this conversation helps. Justine, thank you again for being willing to talk about this. You have been so candid on TikTok about your eating disorder. Why did you make that decision? It came with the content I was creating and a rolling boil of me knowing that I needed to share it. Because when I started creating food videos, they were definitely deeply rooted in not necessarily diet culture, but food rules that I thought I had to follow. So I was doing mostly accidentally gluten-free things, accidentally vegan things. So I grew a big vegan and gluten-free following. And I was like, where'd all these people come from? And I realized it's because I wasn't really making the food I wanted to make. I was making the food that subliminally I thought was safe. And when I started my accounts, I would say I was two years, quote unquote, healed, although I don't use the word healed anymore because healing is not linear. But I thought I was good. I was like, oh, I'm fine. And it was through making my food accounts and making these recipes that I realized, no, I still feel restricted in some ways. And so I was personally processing through that as I was creating content. And I thought, this is valuable information for people to have. This is where people can meet me where I'm at. And for everybody listening to give them an overview, I suffered with binge eating disorder from age 13 to 23. And this came with food not being a huge part of my family, but restriction being a huge part of my family and having to navigate that as an adolescent and then taking that all the way with me through college and never really feeling safe. And it was in adulthood that I started to feel safe with food, and that has only grown with my accounts. And that's where I say healing is not linear, because going through this experience and making food my job, it's made my relationship with food a lot more intimate, but a lot more insecure. What I mean about that is there are multiple well-documented studies that when you go through a period of starvation, or any human goes through a period of forced restriction, they become more likely to be hyperfixated on food later in life. So I recently shared this. I love what I do, but I do wonder if I was meant to do it. So I have this very close, very passionate, very, for lack of a better word, electric relationship with food. But I do wonder, did I do that to myself? You mm -hmm. had talked about discovering that food was magical via your dad doing these parties and him cooking. When did it turn for you to mm -hmm. something you struggled with? It was definitely when I was young. So those parties, I would say they took place when we were coming back from Hong Kong. And this podcast will actually be the first place I'm going to disclose this. My dad got very sick when I was 13. 
So those things correlated. So the parties stopped. My anxiety got higher. And my need to control something also came into play. And it also parlayed into the fact that I'm just a different sized human. And at age 13, I was. And it's just very much told to be the straight A student, to be the hard worker, to be the perfect person. You need to look a certain way. So it was just all this compounding external factors that made that turn happen. And it does hurt to talk about because I know how much I missed out on. I know that when I opened up and connected with people about this, that was a big thing that people shared back is like, when you're going through something like this, you know what you're missing. You know logically that if you could be healed, you could have so much more like time with your friends or experiences because food is an experience. That's another thing that people talk about all the time. And so when it turned for me, it was definitely hard, but I was so far in it that I didn't realize it. Mm. Well, Justine, I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm glad that I've been able to process through it in the way that I have. Yeah. I know you don't like the word healing, but I just think there's something so wonderful about what you do on TikTok and what you put out into the world. I really hope so. And I know it's only small, short, one-minute videos, but I really want people to take away from them that if you are feeling trapped or even uncomfortable or just slightly afraid of food, there's so many ways to use it and to empower yourself with it. And that's the other thing I try to bring to my accounts is I started as a quote-unquote health food account, but I still hold true to feeling like I cook really healthy, wholesome, balanced things. Call me later when you see the coffee cake I'm dropping next week. But I think that's just such a core part of my ethos is I'm not defined, but there's a strong undertone of I want you to feel nourished when you see mm -hmm. the food I make. Did you start to talk about your eating disorder on TikTok because you thought you could help others or were you ultimately trying to help yourself first? It helped me immensely. I feel like I needed to justify what was happening. I'm not going to lie. I think going viral is a privilege, but also an algorithm that you can hack. I did know that a lot of people were going to see it. And that is being horrendously transparent. But it being that honest and being able to be vulnerable to a community and turn a one-side conversation into a two-sided conversation healed me and brought a new sense of what social media was to me in a way that I never would have seen it before. I truly hope now it helps more people. And as I talk about it, this is not a selfish endeavor anymore because it, it can't be. It's more shameful than selfish at this point. But I still talk about it because now I see the value in it. Were you able to get outside help? anywhere along this journey? I started therapy at age 28, and that has been really helpful. Personal healing during the disorder, I did that on my own. Wow. And that's because we talked about my career. As many twists and turns as it had, all of them did not pay well. And when I was at ABC, I didn't have insurance. So my primary healing time, I was on my own. And in high school, college, there just weren't resources you made available to you? There were probably resources I could have used. I did not know it was a disorder. And that's the other thing that I think talking about is helpful. I was not bulimic, nor was I anorexic. I had binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So I did not think of that as something diagnosable. I just thought it was gluttony. And I think that's another thing that's very damaging about that is when you feel a robot in your brain and you feel uncontrollable and it's 
taking days of your life away from you, it can be categorized as a disorder. And that's why I speak so freely about it now is because I think the people who are told like, oh, this is just a problem. It's not something to seek help for. Then it turns into what I did, which was eight years of delaying getting help. For folks out there who maybe are suffering through something similar or are relating to what you're talking about or maybe know someone in their lives who could be going through this, do you have any suggestions or advice for them? It's definitely hard to know when to seek professional help. And I am, of course, caveating that I'm not a professional and also did not have that experience. I first started my healing process through a book called Brain Over Binge, which is the first resource I give everybody. But of course, everybody's journey is not the same. So I think absolutely disclosing it to somebody you trust and then seeking help from there is the best resource. I also think it is so easy to reach out to people on social media. And I used to offer that my DMs are open until I realized I can't help. So there's a time where people really want to feel heard. And then there's a time where people really want to heal. And I definitely think professional resources are the best for that. Okay, thank you. It's clear you've been sharing some of your personal life on TikTok. I want to talk about creator burnout because that is a very real thing, especially when it comes to TikTok and Instagram reels. How do you protect yourself and take care of yourself in respect to the work that you do? I have experienced burnout. I think what's very interesting is I have yet to see a creator talk about it in their content because it's we all know about it. We all talk about it on podcasts and long form format. I've never seen somebody making a video say like, this is what I'm going through. This is where I'm at. I think there is a lot of pressure to be happy all the time and gloss over everything. I am too in deep with how honest I am to be that person. So I definitely rode a burnout for seven, eight months, and I had to protect myself by taking a tangible step back and being honest about it. Because that's the other thing. Food doesn't lie. And people could tell that I was not happy making that food. I think that's where the emotional connection to food comes in and also the emotional attachment to content creation. Because you might not notice it if you're a consumer right now listening who scrolls their phone for recipe ideas. You might not notice it and think, oh, I'm not going to like this video because that person didn't enjoy making it, but it comes across in the content. So to protect myself, I just know that my motto is cook happy. And also, I will live to see another day of putting a video out. It doesn't have to be today. Some folks might be like, what? what is this burnout? Like, I don't understand. You're so lucky. You're home. You're making mm-hmm. videos. You get to, you're your own boss, but you are by yourself. I think that is a big part of it. You don't necessarily have a team. I mean, some of the biggest creators eventually get a team, but you are home by yourself. That's the biggest struggle for me. I called it during the pandemic micro de-stressors. Like throughout the day, the commute you would take to work might not be fun, but having the coffee is like my micro de-stressor. And like having that weird chat with Rob from accounting is like another social kind of expression that you get. And I don't get that. And so it also makes my days a little bit more anxious to be completely transparent. I tell people this all the time. I'm not inherently a very good food stager. I'm not a very visual person. I'm a very auditory person. I learned on the job. You can scroll back through my content and see that how I learned on the job. Sometimes I have a great recipe. It's delicious, but the staging doesn't work out. So that burnout comes from having to film something three or four times. And by that time, you don't really want to be filming that. And then it also comes from creative burnout of, I really want to make a ricotta lemon pasta. 
how many of those do we have? Does that justify my audience's attention for this day? And so it's having these standards be so high and having the goalpost keep moving. And I think that's where the burnout comes from, too. And then unlike, let's say, Rob from accounting, who we just (laughs) talked about, when Rob from accounting is doing his work, he doesn't have a million people weighing in on what they think of it. It's not even about the big things sometimes, the tiny things. Like I've had somebody pick apart a caption of mine on Instagram, which I didn't know people still read captions, and then compare it to another video from six months ago. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of critique that it's it felt like we were in English class and I was a novel. So it's definitely it's interesting being aware of the opinions. I think for my own creativity, I try to take a step back from them. Yeah. You are not a book. You are a human being. And people forget that. I think on a human level, humans understand. Every time I put on my Instagram or tell anybody, like, I'm feeling a little creatively uninspired or burnout, everybody will be like, take a break. We're here for you. And I love that. What they don't understand is they're, I treat my audience like my boss, but the algorithm is the real catch-22. And I, so I think when we're looking at sustainability for humans and creators and social media, that's really going to have to be a conversation that we elevate to the people running these platforms. I had a friend, Liz Moody, who you had on this podcast, oh, I love Liz. proposed the idea of sabbatical mode, where it gives a creator the opportunity to turn on sabbatical mode, which means I'm off for two weeks and it can't hurt them or it can't take away what their audience is seeing. Because I've had a post or two just not get seen. And that can be because I post at the same time as a bunch of other people and the algorithm can only show so much. I always tell this to content creators, sometimes it's not the content. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times you're working with this algorithm. So in terms of sustainability, we have all these great minds talking about how content creators can create in seasons or batch content or really build in breaks to that. But I think the biggest thing we're not looking at is the people running these platforms. That's a great point. I feel like every time someone says algorithm, they need to raise a fist at the heavens and be like, the algorithm. And I never thought I would be the girl who's like, I complain. I usually don't complain about the algorithm. I've been very blessed by many algorithms, but it's It's you can't ignore it. Okay, you don't post every day. I do That is definitely something you do to protect yourself. How often do you post and why? I post Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. I'm thinking of switching it up to Tuesday, Sunday just for my own mental health and also to sustain the power of my work. I know people who post once a week and it's just a great post and I think that's valuable and I think it's really sustainable. I post more on TikTok. I went over the summer, I posted five days a week, tried that out, not for me. And that's because when I do post a brand deal, while I'm very proud of the brand deals I put out, I feel like that's bonus content and you're still as a viewer entitled to standard content. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about your videos themselves because people just love them. The Cut described your videos as soothing in their simplicity and gentle in their delivery. How did your aesthetic evolve to what it is today? It has evolved so much. So I first started doing the voiceovers, bright, happy, BuzzFeed tasty style, and it just never felt authentic to me. So I started incorporating more storytelling. And then when I started posting more on Instagram, which was never really a priority for me until it's now a huge priority. I have a huge and different audience. Everybody wanted the recipe for my videos, so I just used Instagram. I'd screenshot the TikTok and write the caption in the Instagram post, and that was before Reels existed. And I remember sitting in my bed, and I was just putting all the recipes on Instagram, like, begrudgingly. 
And I turned to my boyfriend and I was like, oh, I have 17 followers. Because I didn't think anybody would follow me. I thought it would just be a resource. And it didn't feel real until I think I had about 800 followers. And I was like, oh, I need to start making this a big thing. My videos have definitely evolved. And it also, looking back a year ago, I probably don't like my content. And I think that's very healthy. I think if you're a content creator, you should cringe six months back at what you were doing because that means you're growing. So my content went from bright, happy, fast to then on Instagram, I thought the only thing that was cool were these like aggressive, loud, choppy ASMR videos, which just looking back are not me. And I still chop a lot, which like sometimes I'm like, can I just do my mise-en-place to the side, please? It was just not me, not authentic to me. And I finally got the guts because I realized Instagram was, its attention span was slowing down. It was ready for longer videos. I was like, I'm ready to speak for my work. I'm ready to share my stories and I'm ready to share, or at least about my food. Now I really just stick to the food because it is creatively taxing to do stories and meaning and inspiration. And people really responded to that. And that's how I found my voice. And I think it took me a good like year. Let's walk through the video creation process. What do you shoot your videos on? An iPhone 13. And what do you use to edit your videos? I use Final Cut Pro. How about recording your voiceover? I talk into my phone. <laughs> I really want to upgrade to a, a big mic, but I have this superstition. That's the other thing about me. I'm so superstitious. I have this superstition that TikTok and Instagram reward me for recording it on their own platforms which is why my videos are different, because I record my voiceovers twice. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Next thing I want to talk about is how TikTok creators make a living, because that's a mystery to a lot of folks. You've diversified yourself a bit more. Yes. Can you just walk us through briefly your various income streams, if you don't mind sharing oh, them? Yeah, absolutely. So I've worked really hard to get it 50-50, and I'm very proud of that. It used to be 80-20. 20% was income from my blog clicks. So I have a blog that has ads on it, but you don't pay anything to go to it. So if you've made a recipe of mine and you've looked at my blog, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And 80% was brand deals. And now it's 50-50. My blog is getting a lot more. It's just a rolling boil. It's showing up in Google a lot more. People love a kale salad. So that's how I make money. I'd really love to start a paid tier of my Substack. I, again, don't know what that looks like, and it feels bad to go into anything half-baked. But I do really see a future for myself with a little, like with brand deals probably being 20%. I'd love to make the blog how I make money. Okay. This varies greatly for a lot of TikTok creators. I'm talking with somebody who works really strongly with affiliate links. I'm talking with somebody who makes a lot from the TikTok creator fund. That's very rare. It's just very different for everybody. What's the TikTok creator fund? So it's different from YouTube ad revenue. So TikTok created a I don't remember how much money it was. It was probably a billion dollars, but it was just a big pool of money. That money eventually will run out, which is why it's different from YouTube AdSense. And creators are paid per view if you apply for the creator program. However, a lot of creators felt like their views were being suppressed through being part of that creator program. So a lot of people aren't part of it willingly. Okay. So you do a lot of brand partnerships mm -hmm. and you now have an agent who helps you with those? I have a manager. A She's manager. amazing. Hi, Lisa. She's wonderful. How did Lisa come into your life? Lisa actually worked on the brand side. So my longest term partner is Garden of Life. I am going to give them free promo here because I hey. highly endorse everything they do. Mm -hmm. And they were the brand partner actually that gave me the financial stability to leave my job. And that was because of Lisa. And then Lisa left to start her own management company January of last year. 
And about nine months later, I signed with her, and it was the best decision I ever made. Great. I'm happy to hear that. So that takes some pressure off you in terms of these partnerships. It definitely streamlines the process. I still am a one-woman show outside of her, and I think that will eventually need to expand just to keep up with all of the platforms. Okay. So your name is Justine Snacks. How did that name come about? Everything that started this account was a joke. And so that was the other thing, even the fear of not wanting to lose my job. I was like, okay, I have to be anonymous. And so everybody had Rachel Eats or Martin Cooks or Blank's Kitchen. And I was like, I'll just be Justine Snacks. Nobody's snacking yet. Oh, that's funny. And here we are. Your food has evolved to be way more than snacks. I'm the full meal. You are the full meal. How would you describe Justine Snacks cuisine? Oh, gosh. This is an interesting question because I've been thinking a lot about how to define and refine my own personal food style. And I definitely think I operate with a certain level of innovation and uniqueness. I think that I also hold really strongly to rustic preparation. I think you can be rustic and polished. And neither of these means that you're not complex. I just think it's just a different style of person cooking. And I also think a Justine Snacks meal rotates around ingredients, but it definitely isn't beholden to them. So you can always make substitutions. Fantastic. What is your recipe development process like? Do you put a lot of time into that? I do. I take the recipes that I develop very seriously because after having so many people make your recipes, number one, they have to work. I never want to ruin anybody's dinner. And when somebody comes to my blog with a comment saying, oh, this happened or this happened, it know that I'm personally gutted and I will work with you. So take that very seriously. And also, I want to give people something different and something that they're excited about for dinner, whether that's crispy quinoa that you've never had before, which is so simple, or whether it's like taking brothy beans and elevating them with adobo. It's I always want to add like that extra spice. So I take that process very seriously and everything gets tested about twice. But my process is I start with the concept and then I have to find a visual reference. Because, again, visuals don't come easy to me. So I find something that looks similar that I can stage the meal around. And then it goes into testing and the rest of the process. What is your most successful video to date? On TikTok, there is a video that was a series finale. I did a four-part series all about my ex-boyfriends. And this finale video is about meeting my current partner. His name is Eric. And so that one... Wait, those are your most successful videos? It sits at two and a half million likes. Were you making food as you talked about the exes? Yes. (laughs) So the series was making recipes inspired by my ex-boyfriends. And so that's that was a long time ago. But in terms of most viral and most cooked, definitely my baked salads. And then definitely in terms of most viral, the butterboard. What is a baked salad? Oh, I, I love a baked salad. So that's actually a video that I started in 2020 and then I just repeat it every year. But a baked salad is, for lack of a better word, a salad that is baked. I take hefty vegetables, so think Swiss chard, kale, cabbage, roast it till it's like nice and crispy and really just like hearty. And then I usually do some version of an agridolce dressing. I play around with it. I've done a million now. And then, of course, some much-needed crunch. It's just wholesome filling. People love it because it's a full meal and you feel really good eating it. Some people might call it roast vegetables. Maybe. Sweetgreen could definitely say that they make baked salads first. I think the addition of the green is what makes it more salad than just a vegetable roast. Got it. If people want to know more, there are videos you can watch, folks. Okay, we have to talk about the butterboard. I just find this 
so hilarious. I'm pro butterboard, just for the record, <laughs> folks. I think I've, when we interviewed Ina Garten, we talked about the butterboard, and I outed myself as pro butterboard. Ina, I'm sorry, Justine, not pro butterboard. I appreciated the support. How did the butterboard come about? The butterboard. So this is a funny story. I was going on a press trip, and I knew I didn't have a lot of time to create content, and. It wasn't called a butterboard in his book, but Joshua McFadden has the cookbook Six Seasons, and in it he has a recipe called Herbed Butter and Warm Bread, and it's essentially butter on a board. So I was like, oh, I'll just tell people about this recipe. It'll be a video that I can film in an hour, and I can post it when I'm on my press trip, and who doesn't love butter? So I post it. I'm in Ireland having a great time, and so I post the video, and then I'm on Ireland time, and I wake up, and it's doing better in that 24-hour period than any video that I'd ever made. And I was surprised because to me, it was just very easy, quick recipe. And then people started recreating it. And I think that's where the drama came in. Because to me, what a butterboard is, is this beautiful, rustic restaurant meal where you serve it with radishes and it's communal and flaky salt and a knife and big dollops and you spread it and it's romantic and classy. And then all of a sudden there are cream cheese boards and pasta boards, soup boards, and people making fun of it, and people saying it's the worst idea, and oh no, it's disgusting. And as the creator of it, I felt really attacked and put into this, at like this level of kitsch. You did? You weren't able to laugh at that? I, I felt like I was on the defense because I gave me so many opportunities. I was on GMA, I was on Rachel Ray, and I just wanted people to see that this is a beautiful idea. This is fun. This is not like something jokey or something gross. And a comedian who I really respected and admired ripped me apart. And I was just like, I just felt very on the defense over something so silly, which is, again, ironic because the actual creator of The Butterboard, Josh, was having the best time of his life. Are you working on a cookbook? I am. The thing that I did not realize about cookbooks is they take a long time. So I am in the beginning stages of one. All right, I'm going to stop you there. How could you not know they take a long time? I thought, okay, I thought that since I was a social media creator that we would just, you know, fast track it because everything in social media works so fast. And I know people who can fast track books, but this being my first, I want it done right. So look out for fall of 2024. How has the process been? It's been great. It's been very healing just to work with food in a different capacity to be able to really take my time. It's been wonderful. Are you doing the writing or do you have someone helping you? I'm doing the writing. It's really important to me. However, the visuals will be completely outsourced. Are you enjoying the writing? I love it. I think, not to disclose too much, there's a lot about refining and defining your food style in the book. And I love that I have a place where I can talk about it more. Have you announced the title yet? We have not. Okay, I won't make you. I won't make you do it. Do you have a title, though? We do. Ooh, okay, I can't wait. I'm very excited for your cookbook, and I hope we have you back on the show when it comes out. Any 2023 professional goals? Yes. The big goal is to get into longer-form content. And I have a vision. I have an idea. I want to take my time. So right now, my long-form content exercise that I'm doing is writing the book. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. When the book is done and dusted around summer, we'll be diving into the next version. Would you like a, a show one day, like a Netflix show or Food Network? I am such a control freak. I want a longer form platform one day, and that's to prevent creative burnout and to tell longer stories. I don't know if that for me is a show. I think there are lots of 
self-made avenues that we are so lucky to have now. Who are some mentors of yours or folks you admire in the industry? There are too many people that I admire to count. If I would name names, it would be unfair. But I have gotten to know Josh through the Butterboard. He's somebody I look up to so much. And his co-author, Martha Holmberg, also amazing. Oh, I love that that brought you two together. Yeah. In a way that was really just like fun and serendipitous. And then in terms of a direct mentor, she hates this. But Liz Moody, who gave the amazing advice on this podcast, uh, if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, please do. It was great. She was the one who told me, she was just like, quit your job. Quit your job. And she is more of a friend than a mentor, but she always gives the soundest advice. And then in terms of content creators, I am eternally inspired by my peers. If you just do like a good dive into your favorite foodies and who they're following online, you will find a treasure trove. Everybody's so different. And I think that's what makes us all so great. Okay. little speed round. One of your favorite books on food. Oh my gosh. I'm reading right now Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. By Lisa Uh. Donovan. It's already changed me, and I'm 50% of the way in. Oh, good. It's a fantastic book. It's so good. Favorite food movie? Ooh, okay. This is because I, it came out when I was very little. Julia, Julia. Meryl Streep's an icon. It's such an interesting story, too, with the how, and now that the show Julia's out, thank you, Cherry Bomb. It's so interesting, and I just love that movie. Favorite kitchen tool? Microplane. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. One thing that's always in your fridge? Ooh, eggs. Favorite childhood food? Eggs. What does Justine Snacks say is the snack food of choice? Norwegian crisp breads. Thin, thin, thin spread of fig butter. Huh. I'm forgetting the name, but I buy it from Sigdal Bakery, but they're these little seed breads. You can also get them at Trader Joe's called Norwegian crisp breads. And then I use the Trader Joe's fig butter, but you can use like any jam or preserve. And it tastes like an adult Pop-Tart, and I can't describe it any better than that. Love it. Footwear of choice in the kitchen. Ooh, I have these amazing little clogs. They're called, they're Cushion Air brand. I got them off Amazon, and they're so cheap, and they're light blue, and they're great. And they make you smile when you look down at your, at your so, feet. so ridiculous. Any motto or mantra that gets you through the day? What got you here won't get you there. If you were to be stuck on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? It would be Ina Garten. And I'd be like, I made you a butterboard. I really hope you like it. I didn't know who you were going to answer, but I was secretly hoping you were going to say Ina so you could convince her. I should have also put her in my huge inspirations list. I think in terms of mentality around food, she's amazing. Ina's the queen. We all love her so much. It's true. All right. Well, Justine, you really are the bomb. You are such a special human being. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today and being so open and just for all the beautiful work you put out into the world. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Justine Doran for joining me today. And thank you to Quesarai Champignon, makers of Cambazola, for supporting today's show. Be sure to sign up for the Cherry Bomb newsletter over at cherrybomb.com so you can stay on top of all Cherry Bomb happenings, podcast episodes, and events. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Our theme song is by the band Tra La La. Today's episode was recorded at CityVox Studios in Manhattan. Our producer is Catherine Baker, and our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. Thanks for listening. You're the bomb. <laughs>